Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This man was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 441, recorded Sunday, September 25th, 2022. And this is a solo episode this week from my home studio in Boise, Idaho. We've had some irregularities to the format in the past few weeks, but hopefully by next week we will return to our regular dual host format. Me and Bill, the dream team, back together again. So this week, I'm recording an episode on the history of the CDC. As listeners may have heard last week, I recently went to a training at the CDC Atlanta campus. Um, But why is the main CDC campus in Atlanta, Georgia? So this week, uh, I'm delving into the origin of the CDC, its historical ties to military fitness, and just how it grew to become the massive public health agency it is today. So um, I'm drawing from a few different sources today. Um, As always, the links will be posted on arsenalfordemocracy.com in a PDF for the show notes. Um, I found a couple different uh, histories on the cdc.gov website. Um, One was just kind of a basic perfunctory history, and then there was a more expanded history on their, uh, their journal MMWR, which is their Mortality and Morbidity Weekly Report. Um, That's where they report on public health um, news and uh, data that's that's relevant and and is published weekly, obviously. Um, And so for their 50-year history in 1996, they kind of did a retrospective. Um, And so I drew a lot of the history um, for this podcast today from that article. I also found a JSTOR article about the histories of the CDC, as well as a couple Wikipedia pages, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention article, as well as the National Malaria Eradication Program article, which I will uh, explain further very soon. So the CDC didn't actually start out as a CDC. Its origin stretches back to a program started by the Public Health Service, the PHS, which is the precursor to Health and Human Services, which is what um, is the umbrella organization for the CDC today. So the PHS uh, started a program um, in 1942 called Malaria Control in War Areas. Many of the U.S.'s military camps were located in the South, where malaria was a significant risk to military fitness. Um, Also, uh, we, at the time, the Philippines was still a colony of the U.S. Malaria was a big problem there. Um, So there had to be a program that addressed um, soldiers getting sick from malaria, whether at home or abroad. So this Malaria Control and War Areas program operated in 15 southeastern states and the Caribbean, and it focused on destroying mosquito larvae before they could develop into adult disease-spreading mosquitoes. 
Um, so they used uh, diesel fuel. They would spray diesel fuel on areas where mosquitoes bred. And then later, DDT, um, very famous uh, pesticide um, that was very popular in the 1940s, 1950s. Um, so that was the main crux of this program. That was a progenitor for the CDC. So when did the CDC actually come into being? The Communicable Disease Center was founded July 1st, 1946, and it occupied a single floor of the volunteer building on Peachtree Street in Atlanta, Georgia. The Communicable Disease Center was founded July 1st, 1946, and it occupied a single floor of the volunteer building on Peachtree Street in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta was chosen as a site for the CDC because malaria was endemic to the area. Um, they started out with fewer than 400 employees, and they were mainly engineers and entomologists, in keeping with their focus on zoological diseases. Um, they were very interested in the animal-borne, uh, animal-vector diseases, such as malaria. Um, Justin Andrews, a scientist at the PHS, wrote in August of 1946 that the CDC's focus was on malaria, hookworm, yellow fever, and, quote, diverse diarrheas and dysenteries, end quote. So many state and local health departments and even foreign public health agencies started sending their staff to CDC for training. A few years later, in 1949, CDC added an epidemiology department with Dr. Alexander Langmuir as the new department's head. Dr. Langmuir started the first ever disease surveillance program, which tracked disease data. Um, in doing this, he discovered that malaria, the disease that most of the CDC's budget went towards combating, wasn't the problem it once was, and these eradication efforts um, by spraying fuel or DDT or other pesticides where the larvae were growing and where mosquitoes were breeding really, really cut down on malaria cases, and it just wasn't a significant disease anymore. So disease surveillance and data tracking became the main focus of CDC, which shaped the trajectory of public health in the years to come. But keep in mind, it was still a a fledging agency, it was still pretty small. And so how, how did it start to grow? So at the start of the Korean War in the 50s, CDC created the Epidemiology Intelligence Service, or the EIS, to counter the growing threat of biological warfare. Although, side note, I would argue we were the ones that were threatening the world at that time with bioterrorism and biological agents used in warfare. Um, so it seems kind of like a misguided fear. <laughs> Um, or we were afraid of other countries turning our own weapons back towards us. So the EIS's job was to ferret out emerging infectious diseases around the world. The first class of EIS officers were trained in Atlanta in 1951 and were then sent across the globe for two-year stints. The EIS program continues to this day, dispatching EIS fellows to assist with disease investigations, both at home and abroad. So in addition to um, being sent out to foreign countries to help um, their public health efforts, EIS fellows are often sent to state and local public health agencies as well. Um, Idaho has had several EIS fellows over the years, and they, um, they do research, they do projects, just really researching the public health dangers that are, exist in the community and really helping out state and local health agencies. So at this time, although CDC was outgrowing their headquarters and expanding their services, PHS was less interested in CDC than in expanding the National Institutes of Health and their research efforts. So NIH was definitely the research arm advancing technology, advancing discoveries, 
uh, versus CDC, which is more based on surveillance and tracking, which is often seen as more of a reactive rather than a proactive effort. So PHS was just more interested in NIH and their more proactive uh, efforts. Um, although Emory University in Atlanta gifted CDC land um, on Clifton Road in 1947, um, where the campus exists today, um, it actually took more than a decade and for CDC to plead their case to Congress to finally get funding for construction of a new campus, where it is today. It's a beautiful campus. It's a huge campus. And it is right nestled right next to Emory University. So two events in the 50s highlighted the importance of the CDC. One, um, a contaminated batch of Salk polio vaccine was causing poliomyelitis in vaccinated children. And the CDC was able to trace the bad batch of vaccine to a laboratory in California and to cease shipments of that vaccine from California to schools. Um, at that time, polio vaccines were um, getting sent to schools, and there were these mass vaccination events, which halted when it was discovered that there was a contaminated batch of vaccine. And once they could trace it back to this laboratory in California, they could again resume the program and uh, get children vaccinated against polio. The other event that really highlighted the importance of the CDC was an outbreak of influenza in 1957. So surveillance data tracked the spread and the scope of the outbreak and from these data, the National Guidelines for Influenza Vaccine were developed, and um, it is surveillance efforts uh, coordinated by the CDC in conjunction with um, state and local health labs that really help to shape what the vaccine looks like from year to year. We send in samples, we send in genotyping data, and from that data, then we we can help determine what strains are going to most likely be prevalent the next uh, influenza season and get, uh, get the vaccine developed that will fight against those strains. Quoting now from uh, the article, the MMWR article about the history of the CDC, quote, CDC grew by acquisition. The venereal disease program came to Atlanta in 1957 and with it the first public health advisors, non-science college graduates destined to play an important role in making CDC's disease control programs work. The tuberculosis program moved in 1960 immunization practices, and then MMWR in 1961. The Foreign Quarantine Service, one of the oldest and most prestigious units of PHS, came in 1967. Many of its positions were soon switched to other uses as better ways of doing the work of quarantine, primarily through overseas surveillance, were developed. The long-established nutrition program also moved to CDC, as well as the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, and work of already established units increased. Immunization tackled measles and rubella control, Epidemiology added family planning and surveillance of chronic diseases. When CDC joined the International Malaria Eradication Program and accepted responsibility for protecting the Earth from moon germs and vice versa, CDC's mission stretched overseas and into space. End quote. So at this time, many of these programs uh, existed outside of the CDC. They were under the PHS, but they were often based in Washington, D.C., and they were not under the purview of the CDC. So as the importance of the CDC grew, they started to acquire these programs. The venereal disease program and tuberculosis were two of the big programs that were being run in Washington, D.C. and did get moved down to Atlanta. And uh, that was very significant. Um, also, that, that family planning aspect, one of the main drivers for venereal disease tracking um, we don't really call it that now. We call it sexually transmitted infections. 
um, a lot of the impetus for, for studying those diseases and treating them and tracking them is because a lot of those um, diseases do cause infertility. So um, the program is called Infertility Prevention, um, and it is a huge part of what both the CDC and state and local um, health departments do for tracking these these STIs. And the funding comes from this like family planning infertility prevention programs. Quoting again, CDC played a key role in one of the greatest triumphs of public health, the eradication of the smallpox. In 1962, it established a smallpox surveillance unit, and a year later tested a newly developed jet gun and vaccine in the Pacific Island nation of Tonga. After refining vaccination techniques in Brazil, CDC began work in Central and West Africa in 1966. When millions of people there had been vaccinated, CDC used surveillance to speed the work along. The World Health Organization used this eradication escalation technique elsewhere with such success that global eradication of smallpox was achieved by 1977. The United States spent only $32 million on the project, about the cost of keeping smallpox at bay for two and a half months, end quote. So I, this is a key part of that surveillance aspect, that focus on surveillance. You can put the resources towards prevention, towards vaccination, in the areas where they are needed the most and are most effective. So like, like the article said, you could spend $32 million on just treating smallpox, on just trying to um, use these non-vaccination in interventions, for two and a half months, that money's gone versus this vaccination program, this um, mass uh, mobilization to eradicate smallpox. So uh, prevention is definitely more cost effective than just kind of blindly fighting a disease without really evaluating where the efforts would be best spent. Quoting again from the article, CDC also achieved notable success at home tracking new and mysterious disease outbreaks. In the mid-1970s and early 1980s, it found the cause of Legionnaire's disease and toxic shock syndrome, a fatal disease subsequently named Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, or AIDS, was first mentioned in the June 5, 1981 issue of MMWR. Since then, MMWR has published numerous follow-up articles about AIDS, and one of the largest portions of CDC's budget and staff is assigned to address this disease. End quote. So, just a reminder: this this article was published. In 1996, the 50-year anniversary of the CDC, AIDS was still obviously a huge crisis at this time, and there were a lot of resources going towards fighting HIV and AIDS. Definitely over the years, as treatments have gotten better, as um, PrEP is, is a thing that exists now, um, the drug cocktails are just so much better, and we are able to get those viral loads to non-detectable levels. Obviously, HIV has kind of taken a backseat to other really significant uh, diseases. Obviously in 1996, they didn't know that SARS was going to be an emerging issue. The first SARS hadn't even really been, SARS-CoV-1 hadn't even been an outbreak uh, pathogen yet. So it wasn't really recognized um, what the major challenges would be in the coming decades. <laughs> um, obviously you can't, they didn't have an a magic eight ball or anything, so they couldn't see what was going to happen. I, I'm sure most people have heard of Legionnaire's disease. They've heard of toxic shock syndrome. Um, those were huge, huge diseases that were really scary because they were just so unknown at the time. Um, Legionnaire's disease is a waterborne pathogen that likes to hang out in water towers um, where water sits and is warm. 
toxic shock syndrome was traced to high absorbency tampons. If the tampon didn't change often enough, the tampon was a, a great breeding ground for this toxic shock bacteria to, to proliferate and get people very, very sick. Um, there were a few deaths in, in the 80s due to this toxic shock syndrome. So it was a big, it was a big deal, um, and it was definitely scary, um, and it was a public health emergency at that time. Quoting again from the article, Although CDC succeeded more often than it failed, it did not escape criticism. For example, television and press reports about the Tuskegee study on long-term effects of untreated syphilis in black men created a storm of protest in 1972. This study had been initiated by PHS and other organizations in 1932 and was transferred to CDC in 1957. Although the effectiveness of penicillin as a therapy for syphilis had been established during the late 1940s, participants in this study remained untreated until the study was brought to public attention. CDC also was criticized because of the 1976 effort to vaccinate the U.S. population against swine flu, the infamous killer of 1918 through 1919. When some vaccinees developed Guillain-Barre syndrome, the campaign was stopped immediately. The epidemic never occurred, end quote. So obviously we did a, a episode about the Tuskegee study on syphilis. Um, we talked uh, about the fact that this study went on long after penicillin was widely used as a therapy for syphilis, um, and the fact that the study did not need to exist any longer, um, but it, it kind of just continued on um, in the background um, and wasn't really scrutinized until it was brought to public attention. Obviously, CDC failed in that. Um, that was a significant failure on their part to, to cease the study, um, especially once there was an adequate therapy. I am not as familiar with the 1976 uh, vaccination that caused Guillain-Barre syndrome. It is a significant neurological disease. Um, it is very dangerous. Um, I, I, I don't want to feed into anti-vax talking points too much, but obviously um, vaccines are can be dangerous, can have deleterious effects. And so it really is important to, to track these adverse events, which the CDC now does. Um, there is uh, a place to report adverse uh, side effects due to vaccines, and I'm guessing it came out as a result of this um, 1976 uh um, swine flu vaccine that, that just um, was, turned out to be a bit too dangerous. And uh, the epidemic never occurred, so the benefit did not um, out, outweigh the risk at that time. Quoting again from the article, As the scope of CDC's activities expanded far beyond communicable diseases, its name had to be changed. In 1970, it became the Center for Disease Control, and in 1981, after extensive reorganization, Center became centers. The words and prevention were added in 1992, but by law, the well-known three-letter acronym was retained. In health emergencies, CDC means an answer to SOS calls from anywhere in the world, such as a recent one from Zaire where Ebola fever raged, end quote. Um, so it's very interesting that Ebola is, is mentioned here. Right now, there is an, an Ebola outbreak happening in Uganda. Um, we've had several Ebola outbreaks over the years the major one being a few years ago, and when there there were a few cases, travel-related cases, that did end up in the U.S. There weren't that many, and I don't think there was person-to-person -person transmission that occurred in the U.S., um, but it was still definitely a public health concern in the U.S. Um, and across the world, obviously. And so it's 
it's interesting that Ebola is kind of this sporadic outbreak that outbreaks happen sporadically. Um, they they come up every once in a while periodically, and we are in the midst of yet another Ebola outbreak uh, today, um, as well as in the 90s. I would like to point out there is a somewhat ominous final line from the editorial note at the end of the MMWR article. As the world enters the new millennium, CDC will remain the agency ready to address the challenges to its vision of healthy people in a healthy world through prevention, end quote. So if you've been um, reading the news at all, I think uh, CDC has definitely, um, over the past few years, tarnished their image as this agency par excellence in the world that is committed to creating healthy people in a healthy world through disease prevention. I, I think we've seen CDC kind of bow to pressure from, from business interests, the airline CEOs, apparently. And so I think I think the CDC has really lost a lot of trust over the past few years um, by telling people, for example, they don't need to buy masks for to prevent the spread of COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. And I think uh, a lot of people rightfully mistrust the CDC um, and I think um, the World Health Organization has kind of emerged as a more reliable, more trustworthy organization. So I think if CDC wants to earn the trust of the people, I think they need to recommit to a focus on the science uh, over politics. I also want to point out that I think a lot of these things are driven by the people at the top of the organization. Any time I've met somebody who's actually in the trenches, they are always very committed uh, to science, to public health, to helping people. And I think a lot of these poor decisions have been made by by the bureaucrats at the top, um, who are, maybe have more of a political leaning. They're often appointed. They're often don't come from being longtime CDC employees. They are coming in from outside agencies. And I think that that focus on, on bringing people in to head the agency that don't really have that, that long-term um, commitment to the CDC, to public health, really leads to these poor decisions. Again, I do not want to tarnish the name of the people working in the trenches. They often are very passionate about public health, passionate about doing the right thing, passionate about helping people. Um, so I just really, really want to emphasize that. Everyone I've met who works at the CDC is, is a fantastic person and obviously show a deep commitment to their work. So with that, that brings this episode of Arsenal for Democracy to a close. Um, I want to thank you for listening. And I would like to reiterate that next week, the uh, co-hosting team of me and Bill will be back and better than ever. So again, thank you for listening. 